0: Coins, baseball pens, vinyl records, comic books, wine, trading cards, and toys. Do you have any collectible items that you like to store at your house? Maybe you went and rented a storage unit just to store all of your most prized possessions. Well, one of the things that I have began to collect over the years is Bibles. I collect old Bibles. New Bibles, really any version of the Bible, I try to get my hands on. Sometimes I go to the Goodwill and just to like to try to see what Bibles are there because I like Bibles. I preach the Bible. I like to read the Bible. I like to study the Bible. I like everything about the Bible. And this past couple of weeks, I recently got to visit the MacArthur Center for Expository Preaching at the Master's Seminary. This is on the campus of Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, right in Los Angeles, California. And when I first heard about this center that they just built, they took one of MacArthur's um, offices in the library and they converted it into this center. And so my preconceived notion about this place was it was going to be a shrine devoted to John MacArthur as most institutions are. You can go to major universities and seminaries, and the founders often have a specific location where it is more or less a shrine devoted to them. But this place was different. There I walked into the library of... Of the, the, of, on the campus there and, and immediately to the right is the stairway and we went up the stairway and we got into to the upstairs location of the library we took a right went in this room and there was office space and bookshelves and through the bookshelves and office space there was a hallway that led to the very back of this center and it was this little room that was converted to this place devoted to expository preaching As I was getting ready to walk in there, I thought to myself, there's going to be all these pictures of John MacArthur, of all of the church, and all the things that he did. And, And when I walked in there, it was nothing about John MacArthur. In fact, there was bookshelves, and within the bookshelf was a half table, a round table, where they would sit and talk and do interviews. But in the middle of the room, to my surprise, was a table. And it was on this table that as soon as I walked in, yeah, I saw the pictures hanging on the wall. I saw all the books. And, and in the center is, is MacArthur's most prized collectible items that he's been given over the years. And right in the center, the first thing that drew my mind and my attention was this old, big Bible on the center. And I thought to myself, could it be what I think it is? And the professor that was leading on the tour began to talk. And and I just interrupted him. And I said, is that right there what I think it is? Is that a 1611 King James Bible? And sure enough, it, it is. It was. And I have to confess, I felt extra sanctified that day by seeing one of the few remaining original 1611 copies of the King James Bible. It's interesting, I began to flip through it and the one passage of scripture that came to my mind was Psalm 23. So I went to Psalm 23, I got to touch this Bible, man, I'm telling you. I collect Bibles and I know that I'll never get to have this Bible in my life. There's only a handful of them left. And this Bible, did you know how much, you want to know how much it's worth? I don't know if this is actually what it's worth, but recently somebody bought one just like this for $350,000 and I got to touch it. (laughs) I got to flip through it. I did not wash my hands or take a shower since. <laughs> Just kidding. We collect Bibles. I collect Bibles. You probably have many Bibles in your house on your bookshelf, and that's one that I will never get to be able to collect. But you know, recently I had a door, somebody come to my door, knock on my door, and they begin to invite me to to a special conference at the Civic Center, and, and I... I Realized that they were from the Kingdom Hall, and I, I respectfully told this nice, well-dressed lady, I said, I, I, ma'am, I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not interested in converting, and I'm not interested in going to, to your convention, but what I am interested in is a leather-bound copy of your New World Translation. So if you could be so kind to let the elders of your Kingdom Hall know that I want a copy, and I would like a personal visit from the elders to my house, and I would like for them to give me a copy. So I just Quickly forgot about that conversation, and a, and a couple months later, early one Saturday morning, I rolled out of bed and walked to the front door. After I hear the doorbell, and sure enough, here's these elders from the Kingdom Hall come in, and they hand me a copy of the New World Translation. Listen, I collect Bibles, all sorts, and if you know anything about the Kingdom Hall, you know it was originally founded in the 1800s by a man by the name of Russell. And he began to teach all these different things about Jesus Christ. And, and actually, originally, they used the King James Bible until they got some people together to make their own translations. And that translation is not a faithful translation of God's Word. And today, I say that to say this, that the Kingdom Hall claims to be Jehovah's Witnesses. And today, I want to share with you a a simple thought today. I want to ask ourselves this question. Will the real Jehovah's Witnesses please stand up? Will the real Jehovah's Witnesses please stand up? You see, there is a falsified mentality of these people who are part of the kingdom hall who are witnesses on behalf of Jehovah, but in all reality, they are false witnesses for a falsified God that is not the God of the Bible. But we see in Revelation chapter 11, interestingly enough, there are two specific individuals named witnesses that God is going to raise up and be spokesperson on his behalf in the tribulational period in the days to come. Now, before we dive any further into this passage, I want you to understand this, that that there's so much debate about these 14 verses. And in fact, many commentators and many scholars and theologians think this passage is the most difficult section of the book of Revelation to understand. And I want you to understand this. There's only two ways to understand this passage. You can either understand it figuratively that is, everything that's being mentioned here is, is just about something else, and we have to figure out that hidden meaning, or it is meant to be taken literally as it is. And so the scene that's going on here in this passage, let me just briefly summarize it, and then we're going to dive in here. I'm going to share with you, no matter which angle you're coming to this passage, a key statement that's gonna, that we're all going to be able to agree on. So imagine here, God sends this angel to John and tells, us, and tells John to rise and grab this rod and measure the temple and the altar and the people that are worshiping therein, but not to measure the outer court. And then he speaks about how he's going to have these two witnesses that are going to come up and they're going to preach and they're going to share the good news of of Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom and the judgment that is to come for three and a half years, 1,260 days. And then these people are going to have fire breathing out of their mouths, they're going to be able to turn water into blood, they're going to do all these sorts of miracles. And then they're going to be killed by the antichrist. And then they are going to do such a disgrace to these two witnesses that they're not even going to allow these two witnesses to have a proper burial and a funeral service. And they're going to let their dead bodies lay in the street. But three and a half days later, the Bible says that God is going to breathe into them life and they are going to rise up. And then the Bible says they're going to be taken up in a cloud and ascend to heaven. And everybody's going to view that event worldwide, and they're going to be full of fear. And then as soon as they're being taken up, the Bible says an earthquake's going to transpire on the earth. They're in that city, Jerusalem, and 7,000 people are going to die, and one-tenth of the whole city is going to be destroyed. So that's the events right here in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. So either that is exactly what it means, or it's to be interpreted figuratively. And I want you to know this that here's the message that I believe that we can walk away with, no matter which angle you're coming from here in these 14 verses. This is the theme of the passage. God has called believers of every dispensation to advance his message of salvation. God has called believers of every dispensation, that means period of time, every generation, to advance his message of salvation. So just as God raises up these witnesses here to go out and spread the message of his return and his judgment and his coming kingdom, the Bible has commissioned you and commissioned me to go out into this world and to lift up high the mighty name of Jesus so that they can come to faith in him. So my question for us all today is this, will the real Jehovah's witnesses please stand up? Let me ask you something. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, the fifth passage of the Great Commission, he says you are to be witnesses that means we are to get on the stand and we are to bear record and be a testimony of the good work of Jesus Christ. So my question for us all here today is this, is do you really want to be a witness for Jesus Christ? Now here, let me ask you again. Do you really, really want to be a witness for Christ? Now let me ask you again. Do you really, really, really want to be a witness for Jesus Christ? Well, today I want to share with you four requirements of what it takes to be a witness from Christ, for Christ in this passage. And today I want you to understand this that there's this whole misconceived idea and notion in modern Christianity that you're going to give your life to Jesus Christ and everything is going to be fine and dandy and you're going to walk in the park and drink your lemonade and go sit down in the shade. But that's not always what the Christian life's going to be. In fact, today I want to walk you through these 14 verses. I want to share with you these four requirements, but keep in mind, God has called all believers from every dispensation to to advance his message of salvation. So that means you, that means me, that means our church body, that means everybody who calls themselves a Christian. We are to give all our focus and attention to the great commission. But here's what's required after somebody comes to faith in Christ. If you really, number one, from verses one and two, if you really want to be a witness for Christ, participation is required. If you really want to be a witness for Christ, participation is required. You know, years ago when when I was in, I think it was in middle school, I was a basketball fan. I loved the Los Angeles Lakers, Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal. They were the dynamic duo of my day of following the NBA. And my uncle, lived in the Charlotte area and we went to visit him and he bought me tickets to go see the Los Angeles Lakers play the Charlotte Hornets. And I'm telling you, man, I was in, I was in hog heaven that day. I was uh, way up in the, I was way up in outer space, way up at the top. And I had my binoculars there and I was watching the game and man, I was living life in the great lane. And the best part about that game was watching Kobe Bryant score the final buzzer beater shot. He took a fadeaway shot, nothing but net, sunk it. Did you know Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, some of the greatest of basketball, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, LeBron James, these people would never become as great as they are at that sport if they just sat on the sidelines telling everybody how they should play the game. And today, I want you to understand this. John, for the most part, in the book of Revelation, he is a spectator watching the events take place. But in this chapter, and in chapter 10, John ceases from being a spectator and becomes a participant in God's program. And in verses one and two, we see that God gives him a purpose in his participation process. And I want you to understand this. As we look in these first two verses, there's a lot of debate about here. And we don't really know exactly what this means here. Is this... Is this speaking about heaven itself or is it speaking about uh, a temple of old back in the days of Jesus Christ or is it speaking about the temple in the tribulation spirit? I want you to understand this, that when you, when you study Daniel chapter 9 and you study the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 24 and you study the words in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in, in correlation to this scene right here, I believe it's referring to the temple that is going to be constructed and built in the tribulational period. You have Solomon's temple, and it was elaborate. You have Zerubbabel's temple, and it just wasn't quite as good as Solomon's original temple. Then you have a remodeling phase taking place in Zerubbabel's temple, and it became Herod's temple, and then that temple was destroyed. And then, of course, we read about the temple in the millennium that Ezekiel talked about. But here I believe that Daniel spoke about this, Paul spoke about this, and Jesus spoke about another temple that was gonna be built. And so here we see that this angel comes and gives John this reed and a rod. This rod was used as a walking stick, it was used as a measuring stick, and at times it was shaved down and used as a writing utensil. And the angel stands and says to this guy, John, rise. As I read the word rise, I think about this thought. How can we participate in being a witness for Christ? Well, check it out now. Participate in God's work by rising when he commands. When God says, get up and go, get up and go. Don't make excuses about it. Just do what God has called you to do. And that's what John does here. And then it says, and measure. So, the second way we can participate in being a witness for Christ is participating in God's work by measuring what He commands. In other words, getting down into the details of fulfilling the exact things that God has wanted you to do. And so here it says, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar. Now, if you know anything about these temples of old, you know that these temples were elaborate. We have beautiful facilities here, so don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But the facilities of the days in the Old Testament of the temple, it was so much more elaborate than what we have here. When we think of an altar that's being mentioned here, we think of like a a little old stand here. But understand this, that the altar was like a gigantic stage that these priests would have to march up all these steps and get on top of this platform. And if they fell off, they could have been seriously injured or killed. This place was, Was huge. And then he says, measure the people that are worshiping. But then in verse number two, the Bible speaks about this outer court, which, if you know anything about the Old Testament temple that was constructed in the times of Solomon and Zerubbabel, you know that there was an outer court that was devoted to the Gentiles, that the Gentiles, who were not Jews, could come into that place, but they couldn't go any further. And here we see that the Bible says that John is not to measure that part. And here we see a distinction between Jewish people and Gentiles, which leads me to believe that this is specifically a place that is in the tribulational period that the Gentiles are taking over. And it seems to indicate that this is a temple that Daniel spoke about, that Paul spoke about, and Jesus spoke about how the Antichrist is gonna rise up and march into that temple, declare himself to be God, and everybody on the earth will have to worship him. Him. I believe this is the temple that's being referred to here. But then as we read verse number two, this is interesting. Participate in God's work by leaving out what he commands. Some, the Pharisees, remember, they had, they had all these extra laws that they add on to the law of the Old Testament. And sometimes in our Christian walk, we can be just like the Pharisees and Sadducees and add extra laws to what God has said. But I want you to understand this, that if God says to do it, do it. But if God says leave it out and don't do it, Leave it out and don't do it. So my question for you is this, is do you really, really, really want to be a witness for Christ? Well, if you do, if you want to take your walk with Jesus Christ seriously, you're going to have to get out of the stands and out of the sidelines and you're going to have to step into the game and in your own way, shape or form, get involved and participate in the great commission that God has called us to get involved in. God has called believers of every dispensation, that is you and me and believers of all time periods to advance his message of salvation. So my question for you today is this, how are you participating in being a witness for Jesus Christ? In verses three through six, we see a second requirement for being a witness for Christ. This word witness, it gives the idea of, in fact, this is the same term that we get our word martyr from. So in other words, the Bible is literally indicating to us when you study this word witness that God wants us to get on the stand and at times we may have to be a martyr for the cause of Jesus Christ. I understand. I get it. We are Americans. We've got our air conditioning. We've got, we got our ceiling fans. We've got our lights here. We've got our heat pumps. We've got, we've got everything. We've got our nice facilities we are so comfortable. And to get out of the comfort zone and to actually get into the game instead of just sitting and soaking and souring in a pew in a church, to actually get into the game and be a witness for Christ, it seems foreign. It seems alienated because that's why we pay the pastors to do all those things. But actually, my friends... God commissioned the 12 apostles to go and to make disciples, and that commission has passed down to every generation of the church, you and me. And so if you really want to be a witness for Christ, participation is required. But secondly today, from verses 3, 4, 5, and 6, if you really want to be a witness for Christ, his unction is required. His unction is required. Notice How many times the word power is mentioned in these verses? Would you say power with me? Power, say it again, power. One more time, please, power. Verse number three says, I will give power to my witnesses. Then it goes on to say down in verse number six, these have power to shut heaven, that it might not rain. These have power over waters to turn them to blood. And in a sense, we can insert and power to smite the earth with all plagues. Power. God's power is what we need. So how can we do this? Even in the midst of our comfortable Americanized Christianity, we need God's power to be a witness for God. Every day that we get up out of bed, we need the power of God to be hovering upon us and to be indwelling us through his spirit so that we can get on the stand every day and be a witness for Jesus Christ. When we walk into the grocery store, when we are at the gas station, when we are at the restaurant eating lunch on a Sunday after church, every day when we get up and go to work, or every day when you're in retirement, when you go to the gym, wherever you are, whenever you are, we need God's power. We need God's power when we're teaching his word, whether it's in a Sunday school class or a a Bible study or in a junior church or in a lighthouse kids club or in a youth Bible study or whatever it is. We need God's power on us if we're gonna be a witness for Jesus Christ. Do you have God's power? Do you want God's power? I hope you do. The question of the ages is who are these two witnesses? Well, your guess is probably as good as mine. But I want to share with you the two really main views, and I want to share with you why I lean towards the one I lean towards. But understand this. This is my speculation. The Bible doesn't clearly say who these witnesses are, so we can't dogmatically preach and teach who these witnesses might be. The first major view, which actually goes back into really a lot of the ancient um, church fathers would actually teach this, they would say these two witnesses are Enoch and Elijah because those are the only two characters in the Old Testament who did not die. And then the other popular view is, well, actually, let me say this. If, if Enoch, well, actually, I'll, I'll go forward. Moses and Elijah are the two where I lean towards and the other major view of this. And so the reason why people use Enoch and Elijah is because they never died. So they got to come back down and die again. But if that's the case, everybody who goes up in the rapture is going to have to come back down here and die again because they use that verse in Hebrews where it says it's appointed unto man once to die. After this, the judgment. There are going to be some people who will escape death and never die. But the vast majority of all people will die. Another reason why I think this is Moses and Elijah is because in the Mount of Transfiguration, who's with Jesus? Who who are the apostles, Peter, James, and John, saying, hey, let's build a tabernacle for you, Jesus, and you, Moses, and you, Elijah? In fact, the, in the book of Deuteronomy and in the book of Malachi, Jewish tradition tells us they are looking for two prophets to come again. One is Elijah and one is Moses. Now, in a sense, partially that was fulfilled. At least Elijah was perhaps partially fulfilled through John the Baptist, but the Bible does seem to indicate that there's going to be an ultimate fulfillment through these witnesses, perhaps. And then to top it all off, to put the icing on the cake is right here in verse number five. The Bible speaks about how fire is going to come out of their mouth. Now, I believe that is literal fire that's going to fly out of their mouth. Call me crazy all you want to, but but I take this literally. And then imagine when when Elijah was, was up against those prophets of Baal, what did he do? He called down fire from heaven. And then the Bible speaks about how how this fire is going to devour their enemies, and that's what happened in the days of Elijah. Then in verse number six, the Bible says that these are going to have power to shut heaven. Elijah (laughs) prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And remember, for a long period of time, it did not rain. And here it speaks about that. They're going to have power over the rain in the sky. Then the the Bible says, power over the waters that they turn to blood. Remember in in the plagues of Egypt, the Bible speaks about how Moses was the one delivering those messages to Egypt. And there, these plagues were smiting Egypt. And then it speaks about not just the water turning into blood, but also all these plagues. Similar to the commands that God used through Moses to speak to Egypt. And if that doesn't convince you, then when you get to heaven, you will ultimately be convinced that maybe I was right and maybe I was wrong. Now, that being said, I want to draw your attention to verse four. Actually, it's back to verse three. Verse number three, it speaks about these three and a half years. If you've ever studied the book of Revelation, you know that it only speaks about three and a half years, specifically the last three and a half years of the tribulational period. You have to go back, and that is called the Great Tribulation, as Jesus said, and you have to go back to Daniel's 70th week to get the full seven years. And then you study Paul's letters in Thessalonica and how you can bring it all together, it's full seven years. But there's a division here about when exactly these witnesses are gonna rise up. Is it the first three and a half years? Is it the second three and a half years? Or is it a combination of the two? I would lean towards the second half, but we can't be dogmatic about it. What we do know about this situation is God is gonna raise up two witnesses. Who specifically they are, we don't know dogmatically, but what we do know is God's gonna raise up two individuals and they're gonna preach and they are gonna send the the message of God to the people in the tribulational period. But then in verse number four, it's interesting this goes back to, to the book of Zechariah about a prophecy that was delivered in the days of Zerubbabel or a message that was delivered in the days of Zerubbabel and the days of Joshua in the time of the post-exilic period when the people of Israel just left the Babylonian captivity and were being commissioned by Cyrus to go back to Israel and rebuild the temple and underneath Zerubbabel, the political leader and Joshua, the spiritual leader. And we see the two olive trees and the two candlesticks are a reference back into Zechariah, specifically mentioning them. So maybe these two prophets are gonna come in... A fashion similar to Joshua and Zerubbabel. Maybe come in similar fashion as Enoch and Elijah, or maybe similar as Moses and Elijah. Nonetheless, we know God is going to raise them up and God is going to do great things through them. So if you want to be a witness for Christ, his unction is required. Notice here it speaks about how they are gonna come and prophesy in verse number three. That is, they're they're gonna tell the message of Christ and his word. And that is what we are called to do today. We need God's power to proclaim the word of God. And then here the Bible speaks about later on that all these miraculous things that are gonna be used by God for them is to devour their enemies in verse number five. So we need God's power to combat the enemies of God. Satan and his demonic forces oppose God, and we need God's power to overcome those enemies. But now check out verses 7 through 10. Before we do, are you sure you want to be a witness for Christ? Because if you do, you know you have to participate. And if you want to be a witness for Christ, you got to understand you need his power on your life every single day. But now let me share with you the third requirement. If you really want to be a witness for Christ, opposition is required. If you really want to be a witness for Christ, opposition is required. Now, I'm not saying the Antichrist is going to come and knock on your door and kill you and let your body lay in the streets for three and a half days. Don't misunderstand what's going on in our text here. I believe this passage reminding us and reminded the early church when John received this vision and it circled around all these churches in the Asia Minor area, he was encouraging them that in the midst of all the opposition that you're gonna face, God is gonna use you and God is sovereign and God is gonna work it all out for his sovereign plan in your life. So when your family begins to ridicule you because of your faith in Christ, when your coworkers begin to ridicule you because of your faith in Jesus Christ, when you lose business deals because of your faith in Jesus Christ, when you're fired or you lose your job or you're thrown in jail or you're martyred, understand that opposition is required. This is actually what the American church does not want to hear. We want our ears to be tickled. We want the message to be extremely motivating and inspiring so that we can feel better about ourselves. But I want you to understand this, that there will come a day when you will be persecuted for your faith. Now, it might be minor and it might be major and it might be somewhere in the middle, but there will come a day when you will suffer for the name of Christ verse number seven, we will face spiritual opposition as a witness for Christ. Look at verse seven. It says, and when they have finished their testimony, understand this, that here's a thought that, that, that I was meditating on. The servant of God is invincible until his work is completed and task is done on the earth. Does that make sense? God is sovereign over your life and he's so sovereign over your life and the ministry that he's called you to, Satan can't stop the efforts that God is gonna use you to do until he calls you home. Satan might be throwing darts at you and trying to stop our church here. He might be trying to to persecute us in the future maybe and he might be able to, to give us a spiritual attack but understand this, that God's work will be accomplished whether Satan likes it or not. So when, when your task is done, when my task is done, is the day that I will go. There's not enough smoothies I can drink that will prevent that day from happening. There's not enough salads that I could eat. There's not enough vitamins or minerals or vaccinations or medications you can take that will prevent you from exiting this earth when God has called it your final day. When your task is completed, it's the day that you walk through that doorway. But here the Bible says that, that these people, these two witnesses, they finished their task and their testimony, that is their, their witness, their time of bearing record of God and his word and the gospel and the kingdom of Christ and the judgment of God was completed. And the beast, in other words, the Antichrist, came out of the bottomless pit and he came to make war against those two and he overcome them and he killed them. And then the Bible says in verse number eight that they faced physical opposition they went through death. And this is the hard thing to fathom is that the world hates God's word and his messengers in such a way. There are times in the past, times in the present and times in the future all over the world that the world and Satan himself will do anything he can to silence the word of God. And so he seeks death. For three and a half days, they had victory. For three and a half days, the, the news headlines are probably going to say, Happy Did Witnesses Day. They're going to send gifts. They're going to have parties. They're going to have celebrations. But then everybody will realize that Satan is not the one that has power over death. God is the one who has power over death and God will breathe life into these dead bodies again, and they will rise. I find it interesting that here this place that is mentioned here, Jerusalem, in a sense here is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt here in this time period because of the rejection of God's word and the rebellion against God's word and the total apostasy from God's word. But then it says here, interestingly enough, this is the same place our Lord was crucified. Jesus 2,000 years ago, died on that cross. He paid the penalty for your sins and my sins and the sins of all humanity so that all we have to do is put our faith and trust in what Christ has done on the cross and believe that he died, believe that he rose again and declare that he is Lord and confess him Lord. And the Bible says we will be saved. It's nothing we can do to earn. It is all by grace through faith. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And here, this same place that Jesus was crucified and later they took him and placed him in that tomb and he rose again. The Bible says this is gonna be a similar place where another miracle of resurrection is going to occur. And here, in verse number nine, it says that every person of all peoples, and nations, and languages, and kindreds, saw them. 150 years ago, You can go back and you can read commentators and scholars of that generation. They had no conceived idea of how this would happen. And so that is most likely the reason why people began to spiritualize this passage of Scripture and began to figuratively interpret it as, hey, this is just meaning something else. But now in our technological advancement and explosion, we understand that I could be sitting in Boons Virginia, and I can share a video with somebody in Hong Kong, and they can see it happen today. Will this be on television? Will this be on YouTube? Will this be on Facebook? Or will this be on TikTok? What will it be on? We don't know, but what we knew is the whole world is going to see it. And then three and a half days, they will be risen. Check it out now. Verse 10 speaks about this rejoicing. Can you imagine? They oppose God's word and his messengers and these witnesses in such a way that they're rejoicing. This is the same term I understand that when Paul writes, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. The same kind of rejoicing that we have over God, they're going to have over these witnesses dying because they could not stand the message they were preaching. So do not be surprised if you're preaching and teaching God's word and somebody doesn't like it. And then the Bible says that these two prophets, they tormented them. Let me just tell you something the message of the cross. If you do not bow in submission and believe the gospel, it will torment you, not just in this life, but for all eternity. Because unless you bow your knee and confess Christ as Savior, you will spend eternity in total isolation and separation from God in a terrible place the Bible describes as hell. But in verse 11, the Bible says that they were raised again. Hmm. We will face spiritual, physical, and emotional opposition as a witness for Christ, so be prepared. Do you really want to be a witness for Christ? Are you sure you do? Because if you really, really, really want to be a witness for Christ, you need to understand that opposition is required. That unction, that is his power is required. And that participation, you got to get off the sidelines and get into the game. In what ways are you participating in the message of the cross and delivering it to other people? In what ways are you asking God to give you power every single day of your life? And in what ways have you experienced opposition in your life for the cause of Christ? But now, let me draw your attention to verses 11 through 14. The fourth and final thought and the fourth and final requirement for being a witness. This is probably, you've heard the bad news so far. This is the good news. If you really want to be a witness for Christ, anticipation is required. If you really want to be a witness for Christ, anticipation is required. We are called to anticipate the day of resurrection. We are. We know that because Jesus rose again, that all saints will rise again soon. Time doesn't allow me today to get into the deep trenches of the doctrine of the resurrection day. But understand this, that there's, Throughout all generations, or excuse me, throughout history, throughout Scripture, we see multiple resurrections. We see a resurrection when the rapture takes place. We see a resurrection when Jesus Christ was, was killed on the cross. We see a resurrection at the very, very last day. We see all these different resurre- resurrections. And, and what I want you to understand this is that we see a resurrection here in verse 11 that these people are going to rise from the dead. We know that there is coming a day when a resurrection day will be occurring on this earth. So we anticipate it. We look forward to it because we know that when that day happens, people are going to be transported from this world of sorrow to a world of endless praise and joy and thanksgiving. Verse 11, it speaks about how after those three and a half days, the spirit of life from God enters them and they stood upon their feet. Could you imagine those news reporters? (laughs) Their eyes were as big as Texas that day. Then, then the Bible says that they were caught up. But before they were caught up, fear, great fear, fell upon all them because in that moment, I believe that the people who heard the messages of those witnesses finally realized that what they were declaring was truth. And then they ascend up into heaven. And so that reminds me that in verse number 12, we are called to not just anticipate the day of resurrection, but we are called to anticipate the day of ascension. That there's one day, one day give God the glory. I praise God that, that we will be transported into eternity and that we get to anticipate the great day of worshiping our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever and ever. Just like these two witnesses were taken up to glory The Bible says, come up hither, similar messages that in Revelation chapter 4, when when John is called up to go to heaven to see these things transpire. And then the Bible says, they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. Imagine Satan, the Antichrist, and all the enemies of God that day watched it all. They're going to watch it all go down. But then, understand this, that we are called to anticipate not just the resurrection and ascension, but also... The day of indignation. The book of Revelation is leading us up to the climactic day of the Lord where God will bring judgment to this world once and for all and defeat the Antichrist and establish his kingdom. And in verse 13, the Bible says that this part reminds us of that day. The earthquake shakes the earth, destroys one-tenth of the city of Jerusalem, and then... 7,000 men died. Now, it's interesting here. In verse number 13, it speaks about how the remnant that was afraid, they gave glory to God. Some people say that these people came from, uh, they were transferred from a lost sinner to a saved saint. Maybe they will be, maybe they won't. But what we do know is it is very, it is an attribute of every believer to give glory to God. And then the Bible says, the second woe is passed, and behold... The third woe is coming. Today, I want you to understand this, that we are called to get in the game. We are called to rise up, to get out our rods, not a measuring stick, but the rod of God, his word, and to go out and share the good news. You know, earlier in the message, I was sharing you things that that I now like to collect, But when I was growing up, I enjoyed collecting trading cards. And recently I I heard about this year on April the 26th 2021, there was a card that was traded that tied Mickey Mantle's value of his rookie card. And it was a LeBron James rookie card. And it sold for 5.2 million dollars. And I began to to understand that, and and I thought to myself, you know, when I was growing up, my parents bought me the entire season of basketball cards, baseball cards, and football cards. And the thought in my mind was, I bet you I got a LeBron James rookie card. (laughs) So all that was stored in my parents' house in the basement, so I zoomed over to my parents' house, I rushed down to the basement, and I'm tearing through these cards. And I quickly realized that I didn't have that card. (laughs) You know, we collect things and sometimes we store them. And we take them and we put them in a safe deposit box at a bank. We take them and we put it in a a hidden closet somewhere in, in, in a safe. But I want you to understand this, that what we have is way more valuable than a LeBron James rookie card. And most Christians, hear me well today, most Christians take the gift that's been given to them called salvation and they wrap it up and they put it in a safe or a safe deposit box and they never tell people about it. So we need to lead today understanding that yes, God is gonna raise up two witnesses in the days to come, but he's raised up every Christian to be a witness in the days of now. So will you rise up? Will you Get up out of that pew. Will you get off of that lazy rear end called Blessed Assurance and go tell people about Jesus? Let's tell the world about him and how he saves. And if these messages have been helpful to you, please leave a review. If I could be of any help in your spiritual walk, please let me know by emailing me at, Pastor Brian Ratliff at yahoo.com. And one last thing, if you're in Roanoke, please consider joining us for one of our worship services at Clearbrook Baptist Church. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you, and have a great week.